This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Common Office Procedures that's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In primary care, we can see a variety of different complaints in the office, and often these complaints may necessitate an in-office procedure. Some procedures are simple, such as earwax removal or fluoride varnish application. Some can be more complex, like administering a stress test. Some are for preventative reasons, such as a pap smear for cervical cancer screening. Or a procedure could be used for treatment, like placing an intrauterine device for dysmenorrhea. Some of the most commonly performed in-office procedures involve the skin and joints. Our skin is the largest organ in the body, so it's no surprise that dermatologic complaints are also one of the most common reasons for a doctor's visit. Many skin lesions, such as warts or skin tags, may be easily treated in the office. Some skin lesions that are not so readily diagnosed by physical exam may benefit from a biopsy. Procedures such as cryosurgery and skin biopsy are simple, common, and extremely useful tools in the primary care arsenal to diagnose and treat skin conditions. Today, we will review these two dermatologic procedures, cryosurgery and skin biopsy, so that you, our viewers, can perform these in your practice. To share their expertise, I have invited two Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center's primary care experts. Dr. Bethany Panchel is an associate professor of family medicine who is very experienced at teaching physicians since she serves as the program director for Ohio State Family Medicine Residency Program. She'll be covering cryosurgery. Dr. Mary Meir is an assistant professor of family medicine and she will be covering skin biopsies. Beth, Mary, welcome to MedNet. Thank, Thank you. you. While we won't be able to cover every single office-based procedure, 
we will be covering another very common uh, procedure, which is the joint injection. Joint injections historically were used to not only treat joint pain, but also to diagnose joint effusions. Today, I am delighted to invite back to the program Dr. Larry Nolan, who is a primary care sports medicine physician at Ohio State and specializes in non-surgical approaches to musculoskeletal complaints. Larry, welcome back to MedNet. Thanks for having us. All right, well, Beth, there are several methods and products that we can use for cryosurgery, including I've seen you know, over-the-counter sprays to liquid nitrogen to carbon dioxide. What do you typically use in the office? Well, in the office, we typically use liquid nitrogen. It mm. does help us with getting much lower temperature. Perfect. And Mary, are skin biopsies something you can quickly add on to an office visit if you notice something that you want to sample? Or is it something you would want to schedule specifically and bring the patient back for? I think for a simple, a few number of lesions, it can definitely be added on as long as the office is prepared with the right equipment. There's going to be a lot of different biopsies that you're doing at once. It might be better to have them come back. Okay, perfect. That's very helpful for kind of logistics. And Larry, uh, which joints are most amenable for a novice like me to learn to perform um, in the office? Yeah, I think the knee joint is far and away one of the easier joints and fortunately one of our more common problems as well as the lateral hip and rotator cuff area. Okay. Excellent, thank you so much. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there along with the slides and instructions to receive your CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast by searching for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about today's program, or any of our programs, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. To start us off today, Drs. Panchal and Mir will be discussing cryosurgery and skin biopsies. Beth? Thank you so much. Okay, so today we're going to talk about these common skin procedures. First, it's, um, we're going to kind of review the skin anatomy, uh, talk about what is uh, cryosurgery, why we use it, and how we use it. So first, the skin anatomy is very important to remember when you're doing any of these skin procedures. So the epidermal layer is that top layer, and it can be up to 1.5 millimeters thick, whereas the dermal layer is much thicker and can be up to three millimeters thick. The, underneath the dermal layer, again, we see that fatty tissue. In that dermal layer, remember, there's the hair follicles, blood vessels, uh, and sweat glands. The melanocytes, um, which are important to remember, are at the kind of the, the edge, the bottom edge of the epidermal layer. Cryosurgery is the use of extremely low temperatures to produce a local tissue uh, destruction. Liquid nitrogen, as I stated before, is the most commonly used in professional settings, um, such as in the clinic. Uh, it produces much colder temperatures than the over-the-counter products, such as di dimethyl ether. Some contraindications to using cryosurgery may include cold sensitivity uh, if the patient, uh, for example, gets cold urticaria. Uh, also, ill-defined lesions might be difficult to treat with cryosurgery, as well as uh, locations where there's thinner skin, such as on the eyelid. Uh, tanned or, or darker skin, you need to, need to be careful because the destruction of melanocytes can cause hypopigmentation. There are several vehicles that you can use to administer the liquid nitrogen. One that is commonly used in the clinic is the spray tip canister, which we'll show uh, in a video coming up. Uh, this is nice because you can take it from room to room and you do not need to have direct contact with the patient. 
Uh, cotton tip applicator is another one that you can use. Uh, it's very precise and you can use it on smaller lesions, especially if it's near the eye. Uh, and uh, for children, I like to separate the fibers of the cotton tip because um, that'll help you pick up more of the liquid nitrogen. For specifically for kids, this is good to use um, because the spray canister does have a loud noise to it and that can kind of scare the kids sometimes. Uh, a metallic instrument is another vehicle that you can use, such as a hemostat. You will freeze it in liquid nitrogen first and then clamp it to uh, the skin tag uh, sometimes, and that will help the skin tag to fall off then. The mechanism of action of cryosurgery is that the heat is transferred away from the cells. This causes tissue necrosis. The freezing is, causes cell destruction in three different ways. One of them is ice crystal formation then the cell membrane becomes disrupted, and then eventually vascular stasis. The rapid cooling and uh, the slow thaw maximizes that tissue destruction. There are several indications for cryosurgery. Some of the benign lesions that you can use it on include skin tags, subureate keratosis, warts, molluscum, keloids, and solar litigenes. Some pre-malignant lesions can be uh, treated, such as actinic keratoses. Uh, you do want to keep in mind that if you're not sure what the lesion is, you should probably should take care to take a biopsy of it, especially if there's suspicion for an underlying skin cancer. Malignant lesions can be treated with cry cryosurgery, but we do this very rarely. Uh, you may see it being used for superficial basal cell carcinoma or maybe a squamous cell carcinoma in situ. Again, we don't use this very often, uh, only whenever other treatments may not be uh, recommended at the time. These do require much longer freezing times to reach a lower tissue temp temperature. The technique um, that is used for the, the cryosurgery that, that damages the cells is that fast freeze and then a slow thaw of the of the skin. It, the, it helps to produce better intracellular ice formation, which is more damaging. Repeating the freeze-thaw cycle actually helps to maximize this destruction. Some of the parameters to use uh, for benign and pre-malignant lesions include using uh, one to two cycles for three to 10 seconds at a time, and you want to make sure you get a two millimeter lateral spread. Uh, in this table here, it shows that uh, what the different cells um, the, the, the destruction is for the temperature range for the destruction is. So you can see melanocytes actually takes a higher temperature uh, than the benign lesions and the malignant lesions for destruction. Here we're gonna see a video, an example of cryosurgery being performed. This gentleman has actinic keratoses on his uh, scalp and the liquid nitrogen is being applied using that spray tip canister as we discussed before. You can see the physician is using that fast freeze and then letting it thaw slowly before she applies it again. Uh, you, she also got that good two millimeter lateral uh, spread of the liquid nitrogen and then allowing it to thaw. You can uh, sometimes identify actinic keratoses actually by feel. Uh, the actinic keratoses has a much more rough uh, feel to it. And you can see the second thaw um, freeze and thaw actually takes a little bit longer than the first. That's causing more cell destruction there. After the procedure, you want to instruct your patient to uh, clean the area daily with just some mild soap and water. They can apply petrolatum ointment 
Always remember to tell your patients to protect their skin from the sun. Uh, and you can expect healing to take place within uh, one to three weeks for most of these lesions. You should tell your patient that they can expect to feel a little bit of pain during the procedure. Swelling and redness will happen, sometimes blistering and crust formation after the procedure. Some common complications, you might see some hypopigmentation occur, especially in skin of collar, because keep in mind that melanocytes, they get irreversibly damaged at mild degrees of freezing. Uncommonly, you might see scarring, nail dystrophy, or alopecia, depending on how long you're applying the freezing, where you're applying the freezing. And now I will pass it on to my colleague, Dr. Mary Muir. So now we will go over shave biopsies and punch biopsies. So for skin biopsies in general, you want to obtain informed consent prior to performing any procedure. So for skin biopsies, the risks include pain, bleeding, infection, scarring, and potential need for additional procedures if the entire lesion was not removed during the first procedure. Some of the benefits include diagnosis of the lesion as well as potentially curative treatment if you were able to remove the entire lesion and have clean margins. Relative contraindications for skin biopsies include bleeding risks, including severe thrombocytopenia, a bleeding disorder, or um, current anticoagulant or antiplatelet use. History of keloid scarring, um, especially with a punch biopsy, as you're going in deeper and you're more likely to have a scar. Um, infection at the biopsy site, and uh, if they have an anesthetic allergy. Um, it's more common to have this allergy with the um, esters than the amides, and often due to a preservative rather than the anesthetic itself. This does not mean that you can't do the procedure in office. You have options of using an alternative class in or in a preservation or preservative-free formulation. You can use a 1% diphenhydramine solution or a normal saline to try to um, decrease the, the, the sensation. Specifically in regards to bleeding risks, the biopsy may still be performed, especially if they came in for that complaint and you decide to add on the procedure to that visit. Um, but hemostasis may be delayed, and so you want to be aware of that and have the appropriate materials available at the start of the procedure. Areas that are more prone to bleeding include the lower legs, hands, feet, digits, lips, and scalp. Um, and you want to use anesthetic with epinephrine to help do vasoconstriction, decrease your risk of prolonged or delay in hemostasis. You want to use caution with the tips of ears, fingers, toes, and genital areas. I know depending on when you originally trained, those were absolute you know, absolute contraindications for using epinephrine, but more recent literature has said that you can use it, but you want to be careful in people who maybe have peripheral arterial disease or Renaud's phenomenon that would put them at increased risk with using epinephrine in those areas. Um, you can also use aluminum chloride, pressure dressing, um, silver nitrate, or absorbable, absorbable sponges to help with hemostasis. With a shave biopsy, this is probably the most common skin biopsy technique. It has a diagnostic role when you obtain the specimen for histological exam. It also has a therapeutic role in removing inflamed or symptomatic lesions. If the intent is to complete lesion removal, then the term shave excision or shave removal is most commonly used. With a shave biopsy, it's best for the epidermal and superficial dermal processes. 
um, biopsy of suspected basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma removal of skin tags. This is an alternative to um, cryotherapy if you don't have liquid nitrogen in the office. And you can do other benign exophytic neoplasms as well. Local anesthesia is used in the to produce a wheel under the lesion. You want to use either a 10 or a 15 blade uh, scalpel if you have those, or a single edge razor blade if you have that available. That will be held in a semi-curved um, stance. The 10 or 15 blade will be dependent on the size of the lesion that you are trying to remove. You want to move through the skin in a sawing motion horizontally, entering the epidermis to a depth of the superficial dermis. Your goal is to have a shallow saucer-shaped defect with a single intact specimen, and you can submit the specimen in 10% formalin or Michelle's solution for Im immunofluorescence. Here we have a video um, on the tray are the different tools that you will need to use. They have suturing, um, depending on the size, some uh, petrolatum jelly, the punch biopsy tools, the aluminum chloride, that is the shave biopsy, curved shave biopsy tool, a cryotherapy gun to remind you what it looks like. Here, they are gonna start by identifying the lesion that they would like to biopsy. They're outlining it to make sure that they get a good wheel of, for the local anesthetic to make sure that the area is um, appropriately numb. Cleaning with an alcohol prep pad, and here they are injecting the lidocaine with epinephrine. And you can see that they are slowly injecting to try to minimize the amount of burning the sensation the patient feels. And you can see the blanching as the wheel is forming underneath the lesion. Once you have adequate, adequate anesthesia, you can remove the needle and grab your tool. And you can see that they have folded the tool to create it into the semi-curved position and they are sawing horizontally back and forth until the entire lesion is removed, applying some pressure. And here they've chosen to use the aluminum chloride for hemostasis. Once that is adequately applied, they will dab once more to make sure the area is clean, apply some of that patrolatum jelly to a band-aid and cover the lesion. Moving on to punch biopsies, these provide a deeper sampling than shave biopsies. Their diagnostic role is obtaining specimen for histologic exam. It's very useful for um, unidentified rashes in dermal or, dermal or subcutaneous nodules and melanocytic neoplasms. Also provides a therapeutic role for removal of small dermal neoplasms. Um, when doing this, it's best to use a terminology of benign excision or punch removal. Also useful in for cysts and inflamed dermal nevi. When performing the punch biopsy, common punch tools vary in diameter from two millimeters to 10 millimeters. Most commonly, it, the four millimeter punch tool is used. You want to create an oval-shaped defect. This is optimal, and you do that by spreading the skin perpendicular to the relaxed skin tension lines during the biopsy so that once it's relaxed, it, relaxed, it creates that oval-shaped. 
um, you will push and rotate the punch tool to the subcutaneous tissue until it reaches the hub of the punch tool and then use forceps and scissors to extricate the specimen. I like to use tooth forceps so that the blunt edges don't destroy any of the tissue. For closures, if, the, if you are using a punch tool that is less than four millimeters, you can let it close by secondary intention. Um, sometimes, depending on the area, it's nice to use um, some uh, adhesive strips to help close. Um, for the larger biopsy tools, sutures generally provide the best closure. You can use nylon or polypropylene monofilament. These would require them to come back for removal. Um, you want to leave them in place for three to five days for the face using a 6-0 filament size, seven to 10 days for the scalp and neck, 10 to 14 days for the remainder of the body parts. You can also use fast absorbing gut that will dissolve in the patient so they don't have to come back. Wound closure strips like we talked about earlier are good in non-tension areas and you can also use absorbable sponge products um, in the areas that are difficult to suture to help with hemostasis and then help with secondary intention closure. Here we'll see a video of the punch biopsy. Again, they are identifying the lesion and marking the area around it so that they can get good hemos, uh, sorry, good anesthesia, cleaning it off with an alcohol prep pad, using their lidocaine with epi to, per, to create a wheel underneath the lesion. And this, again, you probably wanna get a little bit deeper given the fact that, like we said, the punch biopsy goes deeper than the shave biopsy does. And here again, you can see them slowly injecting to decrease the amount of burning sensation the patient experiences, as well as to make sure that you are getting an adequate wheel underneath. Once it's adequately numb, you can see that they are stretching the skin perpendicular to the skin and rotating and pushing down as well. And once it reaches the hub, they pull back. Here they're using their forceps and the scissors. The forceps will um, grab hold of the lesion as they pull that out and the scissors will cut the lesion that they are then going to put into the container to send to pathology. Once that is completed, you can provide pressure onto the site to help with hemostasis. You can see the lesion there. And here they used a large enough punch tool that they are going to suture the area closed. And then we'll finish that up with a bandage dressing afterwards. So conclusions for the skin procedures, that knowledge of the skin anatomy is critical to successful performance of dermatologic procedures and understanding potential side effects. When performing cryosurgery, tailor the length of freeze and number of cycles to the thickness of the target lesion, and remember to freeze fast and thaw slowly for best results. Shave biopsy is best for epidermal and superficial dermal pathology, and punch biopsy is best when assessment of dermal or deeper, deeper pathology is necessary. Thank you both so much. Um, that was really helpful. Um, 
Now I have a couple of questions to help me figure out how I can operationalize this in my office. But Beth, mm -hmm. for larger lesions like a large wart um, that might require multiple treatments, how many or how long do you wait before cryo procedures um, to help optimize healing? Yeah, it's an excellent question. For larger warts, um, again, yes, you'll probably need multiple uh, times to come back for the procedure. Uh, you want to allow it to heal. And mm -hmm. so having them come back, I usually have them come back in about two to three weeks mm -hmm. before I perform it again. Okay, perfect. Now, um, you mentioned that you can have a blister form. Mm -hmm. um, what should, you know, a lot of people when they see a blister, they want to pop it. Should the patient pop the blister or no? No, because underneath the blister, it's sterile. Once you uh -huh. pop it, you're gonna open yourself up for infection. So please instruct the patient to not mess with the blister. Got it. <laughs> now, Mary, am I correct in thinking that shave biopsies are for small raised lesions that you wanna remove completely and punch biopsies are more useful to get a sample that you might want to determine the histology pathology on? I would say that the differentiation has less to do with the size of the lesion and more to do with the depth of the lesion. The size you can tailor for a shave biopsy based on, you know, either the 10 blade scalpel or the 15 blade scalpel. You can um, change how much you're pinching the shave tool mm -hmm. to get um, a smaller versus a wider uh, uh, shave mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. but the punch gets into deeper so if you've got more superficial lesions you want to shave biopsy is probably best and for deeper lesions is where you'd want to do the punch biopsy and then and again for size you've got anywhere from two to ten millimeters mm -hmm. of, a, of a punch tool okay now um are there specific areas on the body that you would not want to try to biopsy in the office i think it, it has more to do with their bleeding risk. And if you are looking to biopsy in an area that we discussed that has a higher risk of bleeding and they're also on either an antiplatelet agent or an anticoagulant agent, it's just gonna be much harder to get hemostasis. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have the appropriate tools to provide that, you may be sitting there for a very long time trying to put pressure to get mm -hmm. to achieve that hemostasis. Okay. Now it I, I saw, you know, in the video you you have to hub the punch biopsy tool. Mm -hmm. So are there certain areas of the body that you don't want to do punch biopsies on? Yeah, so anywhere where it's going to be less thickness, so mm -hmm. uh, joint areas, bony areas, close to tendons, you don't want to hit any of those areas and cause more damage. Yeah, that's, wouldn't want to do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so much. Next, Larry will be taking us through the why and how to perform joint injections in office. Larry? Yeah, thank you so much. So we'll briefly talk about a few of the more common musculoskeletal procedures that can be performed in office, taking a closer look at, you know, why are we doing some of these things and when and how to do them and when we should not do them. Um, and we'll review the diagnostic as well as the therapeutic benefit of them. Um, some points to remember, again, the indications, why are you doing it, trying to help the patient, but are we getting some diagnostic benefit? Um, do they have a relative or an absolute contraindication to it? Um, is this an urgent setting? Is this more routine in office? Um, always putting the patient's safety and the patient's comfort at first and foremost, and then getting comfortable with the technique. This is something that you want to be comfortable with so that your patient also feels comfortable so you can provide an effective uh, aspiration as well as the injection. And keep in mind always the keys to success is just knowing your anatomy. Um, 
one of the nice things about the joint injection is that it can be both diagnostic and therapeutic, right? So the diagnostic portion, if we're able to evaluate some of the synovial fluid, um, as well as if they get better from it, that provides us with information. Um, therapeutic and that it can improve their symptoms, right? So better pain uh, or less pain, I should say, um, better mobility. Um, it can also be a, uh, additional to other treatments. This doesn't mean you have to stop your other treatments. Sometimes we want to keep in mind um, if they have an infection or bleeding risk and things like that that we want to keep um, a lower threshold to maybe utilizing this and then also worrying about recurrence and how often we are doing them. Um, traditionally, you know, this used to be the only way that we could diagnose certain pathology within joints, and so getting that synovial fluid, being it, uh, you know, full of blood or full of fat, we were able to kind of uh, diagnose. Now, with better imaging technology, you know, the MRI, ultrasound, and other uh, imaging sources, we're able to utilize those as opposed to just utilizing the aspiration, but still can be very, very effective for us. Um, it can help with autoimmune uh, evaluations um, as well as other disorders, of course, rheumatoid arthritis, gout, sending those studies of the synovial fluid to help us diagnose clinically and to determine future treatment plans. Um, septic arthritis, I think, is something that's always on the mind and I think something that we would want to get to our orthopedic colleagues or potentially more acute evaluation, such as into the hospital. However, sometimes maybe the only option for the patient, depending on their other comorbidities, if they're a poor surgical candidate, et cetera. So you may be asked from your orthopedic colleagues to potentially do an evaluation or uh, further workup for some septic arthritis. Um, again, the indications for a joint injection or a soft tissue uh, bursitis injection or NSOthopy injection, uh, there's quite a few, right? Lots of pain, lots of dysfunction out uh, and coming into your office. And so primarily what you're going to see the most of is knees, shoulders, and hips. Um, certainly you want to use caution if you are going into or near uh, a tendon area. You don't want to avoid to try any iatrogenic uh, rupture or worsening the situation um, can certainly be useful for a number of other uh, non-osteoarthritis or non-degenerative change type things such as Dequerre veins or trigger finger. Um, it's a great way to give them people that have had lots of pain a good way to get out of your office quickly with uh, an improvement in their symptoms rather fast. Um, some of the other anisotopies, things that we see commonly in the office, such as tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, um, and plantar fasciitis, I recommend caution and probably recommend additional imaging prior to doing some of these injections just because of, again, the risk of tendon uh, injury. Some of the absolute contraindications, though, of course, um, any acute skin infection um, or contamination uh, or compromise at the site that you're planning to inject. Um, if the bursa or the joint uh, depending on what you're going for, it may be an indication instead, right? So if you're using it for that diagnostic aspiration purpose, then the joint um, would be a good place to go, but I would not recommend going into the bursa if suspicious for infection. Um, anytime you have a joint that's been replaced or any metal in the area, I think that's a good time to consult our ortho colleagues. Um, and certainly, if the patient doesn't want to do it, if they have specific true drug allergies to any of the injection materials that you may use, which we'll talk about in just a moment, and certainly if you have concern for acute fracture, ruling that out with some imaging prior to performing would be good. Some of the more relative contraindications would be anatomical difficulty, be it elevated BMI, prior injury to the area resulting in scarring, or if it's just simply a deep structure with other things going on, such as 
trying to do an intraarticular hip. Um, these are things that you might want to just consider having um, a colleague or yourself if you have access to an ultrasound. Um, anticoagulation, antiplatelet therapy is something that you can put in the back of your mind. It maybe is something that you want to at least discuss with the patient, but probably not something that's going to prevent you from doing this procedure. Um, osteoporosis in and around the area or just in the patient, again, something that you want to discuss, especially if you're talking about a corticosteroid injection. And finally, uncontrolled diabetes. I don't think that there's a hard line on the A1C, but again, having that discussion with the patient on hyperglycemia following a steroid injection is very important. Some of the complications, some of the things we already alluded to, um, injury directly from the needle, systemic effects such as the hyperglycemia causing tendon rupture. You can also see some skin atrophy or hypopigmentation from the steroid uh, in that area. Also, sometimes you'll see very rare, fortunately, but uh, a steroid flare or synovitis reaction following such an injection. And just something, again, just to educate your patients prior to leaving your office. Safety, first and foremost, we don't want to do any harm, so we want to be it verbal or written. We want to discuss with the patient all the things that we've talked about so far um, and make sure you're getting that documented depending on your institutional protocol, uh, as well as you want to make sure that you get verbal confirmation of the appropriate site prior to performing, similar to any other uh, procedure that you may do. You want to decrease the risk of uh, contamination by sterilizing the skin. You're going to work in a central and then working peripherally fashion. Um, again, you're not going to want to put uh, any of your injection through a rash or an active infection uh, of the skin. You may just need to delay that treatment or potentially go in a different area. Um, your choice on what you're going to use to clean, potentially betadine, alcohol, chlorhexidine, um, or other. Again, with skin prep, you're always going to want to wear gloves. You're going to scrub the field in a circular pattern, as we've mentioned. Um, you're going to want to not touch the field. This is a no-touch uh, procedure so that you're able to maintain that sterility. Um, you do not need necessarily have sterile gloves, but certainly keeping the area in which you're going to be sterile. Um, fortunately for the knee and mower, the mo um, some of the more common areas, there shouldn't need to be too much hair removal, but if so, um, try to use a snipper or a clipper, not to try to use a razor on that area. Um, and again, for bacterial sidle effect of alcohol, you want to give it a moment to dry. Um, and you're going to try to uh, perform this injection immediately after cleaning so that you're able to avoid any risk of contamination. Um, you want to make the patient as comfortable as possible. Certainly not a lot of people love having needles. Um, and utilizing them for treatment, so um, trying to keep the patient uh, relatively relaxed, also using some local anesthetic to help calm them down. Um, but at the end of the day, it's really about your comfort and you keeping the patient comfort through that. So knowing your anatomy, knowing your comfort um, and your equipment, being uh, very comfortable with all of the things that you're doing will allow you to better reassure the patient. Again, no touch technique. It's good to avoid um, recontaminating any of the field, especially if you're using an assistant or maybe potentially a learner in your area of field. Want to keep those um, onto the same expectations that you have as well. Um, but you could consider to be a little bit more formal with a sterile drape or sterile gloves, um, and it may be helpful uh, if you're going to repalpate an area or if um, it's an area that you need some assistance with. 
in general, corticosteroid is probably the thing we use the most. Um, even though there is little evidence that exists, we pretty much all have utilized it at some point in our clinics. Um, the systemic effects, as we mentioned, hyperglycemia being probably the one we look for most acutely. Data varies anywhere between 5 and 21 days um, that we can see that long term. We worry about avascular necrosis, um, adrenal suppression, and impaired immunity. Generally, we're seeing those more with oral uh, corticosteroids, but still something to consider whenever we're re uh, reusing corticosteroid into an area. One contraindication, of course, would be a true allergy um, to corticosteroids. Um, you want to avoid those. Again, um, skin hypopigmentation, probably the thing that we see the most um, with triamcinolone being lipophilic, kind of hanging out in the area a little bit more readily, so potentially using a different steroid to avoid that. Um, again, as we mentioned, the infection and, of course, the tendon rupture. Uh, as far as your anesthetic goes, uh, lidocaine, rapivacaine, bupivacaine, whatever you have available, whatever your uh, choice is, is probably reasonable. Things to avoid or think about would be um, allergy to it. Um, other than that, you want to think about the cardiovascular and the CNS effects as well as the high intraarticular concentration, but again, uh, with these joint injections, kind of a minimal uh, expectation for that. Some general comments that I would just like to reiterate. Um, you want to use the same size needle every time for your aspiration, same time for your injections. You want to have a consistent feel that makes you, again, feel more comfortable to provide the same uh, type and uh, feel for your patient. Um, you don't want to have a false feeling of not being in the appropriate space if it's too small. If it's a larger gauge needle, you might feel too easy. You might not even be in the appropriate space. Um, and then certainly needle length um, is something to think about when it comes to your patient's um, anatomy and BMI. Here we're going to watch a video of preparing the skin, so using the back end of the betadine stick to kind of re-approximate uh, where we'd like to go, and then again starting in a central fashion and working peripherally to provide a nice uh, good area of sterility, and following that up with a alcohol wipe here, um, which again will give that a second to dry and allow us to have a nice sterile area. And then here with the needle going into that superior lateral bursa um, and injecting. Next you will see some of the things that we use there. So what wasn't fixed featured with some ethyl chloride or some topical um, local anesthetic, um, as well as a syringe of pre-inject, um, different brands of different hyaluronic acid, as well as your betadine, your alcohol, um, Band-Aid, and potentially a gauze or an ACE wrap if you are performing that aspiration to help with uh, some compression following the procedure. Again, always thinking about your anatomy. That joint capsule comes from just below the knee joint to above the patella, and that's why it's usually safest to perform your aspirations up in the superior patellar pouch. Um, it has an association with the uh, joint, excuse me, communicates directly with it, um, whereas the prepatellar bursa does not, and that's not something that we'll cover here today, but uh, good to know. Um, again, anatomy, anatomy, anatomy. The other places you can go as opposed to the superior lateral would be anterior medial and anterior lateral. As you're palpating along uh, the patient's knee, and these I would do with the patient's supine, um, uh, generally for the superior lateral. For these two, I would recommend the patient being seated. And same thing, when you're uh, 
palpating along, you'll be able to follow along that medial joint line into the anterior medial space, and then along the lateral joint line in the anterior lateral space. As you come off the patellar tendon, your thumbs will take a nice um, kind of natural process to about a 45 degree angle laterally and a straight on shot uh, anterior medially, which is exactly the way you want to inject into those spaces. Again, talking about that lateral super, super patellar uh, space, you're gonna have the patient generally supine. You can do plus or minus a pillow underneath the knee. Um, you're gonna go just proximal to the superior pole of the patella. Um, you'll feel that pop. This is the place that you want to do the aspiration, but you can also, uh, as a fine place to do just a simple injection as well. This is looking at it, um, I think it's always helpful to look at a model to um, kind of remember our anatomy and kind of think about what's happening as you position the patient. So the more the knee is bent, you can kind of see that, that gapping of the joint there, um, as opposed to here with the patient would be seated, right? You already have that natural bend kind of palpating along there, showing where the meniscus would lie, the LCL, and kind of along that inferior pole of the patella and the patellar tendon. Um, and so directing that needle anterior laterally um, at about a 45 degree angle to get you right into the joint space. Again, you should feel no resistance. Once you're in the joint, it should be nice um, and flow well. Compared to the anterior medial side, where you can kind of see, again, if they were to work underneath the, the inferior pole of the patella and that to the right of the patellar tendon, you would avoid the meniscus can kind of go straight shot into the needle joint. Um, so this is looking at it more on a, on a real model. So always thinking about your anatomy, starting with palpating around uh, the patella there at the superior pole, the inferior pole, and previously the medial and lateral edges, um, walking along um, to mark that, to know where you're at. Not necessarily always something that you need to mark in your office, but just a good way to kind of visualize yourself. So then showing the quadricep tendon, and then inferiorly uh, the finger being on the IT band, um, and then that joint space that we're looking for, uh, or that superior lateral bursa, which communicates directly with it, right in between where that kind of dotted line is, right where he's palpating there. Again, some other injections that we want to do as opposed to just the knee. Um, the hip far and away is probably going to be um, next in line. Um, that posterior lateral hip pain uh, coming in with that greater trochanteric uh, pain syndrome kind of presentation, uh, formerly you know, kind of referred to it as bursitis. Um, you're going to want the patient in the lateral decubitus position with the affected side up. Um, you can have them doing this standing, but definitely preferred for a laying procedure. Um, and depending on uh, the soft tissue that you're going to need to uh, go across, you may want to use a spinal needle or something uh, larger to get to that point. Um, there on the right, you can see the picture of kind of where the injection site is, that glute med tendon coming down inferiorly. You want to avoid going into there. You're going to try to go right into that, that bursa, um, and you want to differentiate between the tendon again to avoid that uh, tendon rupture. When you have them laying down on the side, you're going to hit it at exactly as that arrow shows, kind of right at a 90 degree angle, so point of maximal tenderness, and go directly through the skin. Um, previously. Uh, anesthetizing the skin with the ethyl chloride is certainly reasonable in this area as well. So here, fortunately, the patient has been labeled pretty well. See, we're finding that spot of maximal tenderness where the circle is, uh, the femur kind of being drawn down the lateral aspect of the hip there, and the glute med you can see superiorly, which we're nowhere near. So repalpating to find, make sure we're finding that point of maximal tenderness. Um, 
again, remarking with the back end of the betadine stick, starting centrally and working peripherally to sterilize the area. Coming in next with the alcohol wipe and the ethyl chloride you can see there in the, the distance. Uh, again, you're going to go perpendicular to the skin right at a 90 degree angle and insert the medication right into the area. And this is a good example. You can see the patient's not quite on their full on their side. You know, again, patient comfort first and foremost. Um, we want to try to make it as comfortable for them to have to go through such a procedure. Um, and again, right there, 90 degrees to the skin, um, going deep into that tissue and applying the medication. One of the other places that you'll often see in the uh, office is the rotator cuff or the subacromial bursa area. Um, it's lying right beneath the acromion, of course, um, and where the rotator cuff tendons, where you'll see tendonitis, tendinopathy, um, much of those type of uh, injuries, overuse injuries, overhead injuries. Um, an easy procedure for the person to do. You can do it with the patient seated. They can be in their the chair that they're sitting in or up on the actual uh, examination table uh, and great way to diagnose as well as provide therapeutic benefit. Um, some of the w reasons you would see it there as we have mentioned. Um, adhesive capsulitis though I would recommend going more into the glenohumeral space um, potentially under ultrasound guidance. Um, there's a few other places to inject as well the, the chromioclavicular joint also being a big source of pain for patients and something else that I would probably lend on my additional imaging to pursue. But the subacromial bursa by far and away most commonly uh, performed and the one we'll go into more detail here. Um, the way you're going to perform the injection, a little confusing since the picture is from the front, but I think it holds conceptually. So you'll be uh, posterior to the patient, you'll walk along the medial aspect of the scapular spine getting to the point of the acromion where it starts to turn anteriorly. Get your finger right on the corner there and kind of have it fall inferior and medial uh, into that subacromial space. Uh, again, there shouldn't be any tendons, any structures, ligaments, etc. in your way. Um, do the sterilization techniques as we have described. The ethyl chloride, again, for the skin anesthetic, and then apply the injection anterior medially directed either at the opposite nipple or the sternoclavicular uh, joint for the patient, again, from behind. Um, and then apply the Band-Aid and all of your normal post-procedural uh, care. Perfect, thank you so much, Larry. Um, that was a lot to go through in such a short time. Now, um, the ethyl chloride, does that just numb the skin surface? Yeah, it's very transient. It only works for a few seconds, but helps with the uh, pain associated with the needle itself. Okay, so then if you have kind of a deeper uh, deeper pocket that you're trying to inject, would you also use something like lidocaine to inject along the track? Because it sounds like the gauge of the needle might be a little larger. Yeah, and sometimes depending on how deep the structure is, um, um, we can either provide some anesthetic with lidocaine um, kind of along the track to get to the, the place in which mm -hmm. you're going, but then also having either some lidocaine or rapivacaine within the actual steroid medication to get at the local spot where you're attempting to inject. Okay. Now, how often can you provide these joint injections? Like, let's say we're doing a corticosteroid injection. How often can you repeat that? Yeah, certainly less is always better if we can, you know, uh, augment with other modalities, medications, physical therapy, those kinds of things. But um, in general, we can do it up to every three months. Okay, and then the anesthetics, like if you're doing 
Pivocaine. How long does that last? Yeah, usually just getting the patient some relief throughout that day, usually a few hours. So I kind of warn the patient before they're leaving, hey, your symptoms may come back later today. It's not that the medication isn't working or the injection didn't work, but just kind of expecting that, that steroid to take a day or two to really kick in. Okay, so do you typically do those together then to give them some immediate relief plus the a little bit longer term relief from the steroid? Yeah, absolutely. Especially when using triamcinolone, just because again, it's so lipophilic that it stays in the area. So mm -hmm. the anesthetic also provides us a solvent to get it to the space. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're trying to get into the correct space, do you really just depend on that pop sensation to tell you you're in the right space? Or what are some other clues that you're not injecting into tissues? Yeah, exactly. So the pop is one of the bigger things. I think it's more of a sensation. It's kind of hard to describe until you feel it, then you know what you felt. Mm -hmm. But I think the biggest thing is the lack of resistance, right? If you're not hitting any resistance, then you know you're in some spot such as a subacromia bursa or the knee joint where you're not getting that resistance. Okay. Do you often um, kind of pull back and aspirate to see if you're getting more clear, I guess, synovial fluid, or is that um, is that recommended? Uh, certainly, if you have any suspicion for, um, if you're uncertain of where you're at, or if you have you know, want to see if there's enough synovial fluid to actually aspirate, I think that's appropriate. Um, and then a slight uh, drawback of the needle, I think, before injecting is always good. Okay, excellent. Um, I think that is my last question for you. Now, um, Mary, if you don't mind me asking a little bit, um, going back to the skin biopsies, um, what are some tips that you might recommend to a patient to minimize scarring after a punch? Um, to, to take care of the area, make sure that you clean it, warm soapy water like Beth had mentioned for cryotherapy as well. Mm -hmm. um, you want to protect it against the sun and then follow your doctor's instructions in regards to how long to keep the bandages on for. Mm -hmm. um, because the if you are using especially the adhesive tape and you take that off too soon, it could open up and just take longer to heal and more likely to scar. Okay. Now, in one of your videos for the punch biopsy, it seemed like um, the injector or the, the proceduralist was using quite a bit of lidocaine. How much lidocaine do you typically use in one of these procedures? So it's going to be dependent on the size of the lesion and the depth mm -hmm. of the lesion that you're going for. And so it's going to be, you know, anywhere probably from three to 10 millimeters or sorry, milliliters, depending on the size. Okay. Wow. 10. That, yeah. that could be quite a lot then. It, it, yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you three so much for coming on and explaining these procedures so that we can do them in our office as well. We're going to finish up today's program with a final key point from each of our presenters. Beth? Yeah, so remember cryosurgery is a very simple tool to use. You can use it on a variety of skin lesions, and so it's important to kind of remember how long to keep the freeze on for the specific lesions. And Mary? I think the main point is to remember that skin biopsies are an easy tool to add on to an office visit when they're coming in with a dermatological complaint. Just making sure that the staff is aware by like pre-rounding with your staff so that they know what tools are going to be needed. And Larry? Yeah, always keep in mind your anatomy is a huge tool uh, for you to utilize as well as why and how you're doing something, excuse me, why and what you're doing is equally as important as how. Perfect. Thank you guys so much once again for the program and thank our audience for joining us today. If you would like to receive your CME credit for watching, please don't forget to go to our website, which is ccme.osu.edu and take your post test. You can also receive internal medicine maintenance of certification points there. 
Uh, don't forget to join us again next week. My guests will be Dr. Mahmoud Hamzi, and he will be discussing cardiac arrhythmias beyond atrial fibrillation. That's all for today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and farewell until next time.